We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Tuesday, July 10th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show... Our next segment, we're going to have a very special guest. One of the people in this country who has the most influence on what happens in the veteran community, the chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, Senator Johnny Isaacson of Georgia. Going to talk to him about the VA, talk to him about Robert Wilkie, who may be confirmed today. All sorts of great stuff that we're going to talk to the senator about coming up in just a bit. And also keeping things Capitol Hill related, Justin Brown of Hill Vets will call in by phone today, not able to make it into the studio, but we'll talk to him about the latest and greatest items that Hill Vets is dealing with. Of course, Hill Vets is an organization that works to get as many veterans as possible involved in politics, whether that's on a congressional staff, working for one of the many departments in Washington, D.C., and uh, they do some pretty amazing things. We're going to talk to Justin about that, and of course, Senator Johnny Isaacson is coming up next. But first, one of the other most important people in the veteran community, Mr. Jake Hughes. Jake, good morning. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Eric, how are you? I'm all right. I got more sleep last night than I did the night before. The night before, I got like three hours of sleep. I was dragging yesterday. Yeah, I, was, I don't I don't know what happened to me this morning as I was driving in, but I was like falling asleep at the wheel. I don't know why. I got plenty of sleep last night. It's just for some reason this morning, my brain didn't want to wake up. That's not good, falling asleep at the wheel. In fact, that's very incredibly dangerous. So, yeah, that's not good. Make sure you uh, get all your sleep. But on Sunday night, I just could not get to sleep and ended up getting three, three and a half hours. And I just felt out of it all day yesterday. Got home and thought, I'm going to go to sleep right away when I get home. And then I couldn't fall asleep when I got home. So <laughs> I ended up getting like six hours last night. Still not great, but, you know, better than nothing. Yeah, it's... uh you know, it's one of those things. It's one of those things I've had more issues with since I got out of the military, getting to sleep on time. can always wake up on time. That's not a problem. Getting to sleep at a decent hour, whether it's because I get busy doing something, I focus on something stupid like a TV show or a video game, or my body just won't let me. And that happened to me this weekend. And I think what happened to me on Sunday night was because of what happened on Saturday, where I didn't get to sleep until like 5 a.m. Just couldn't do it. Watching the fights and then after the fights, it just kind of, I don't know, couldn't do it. Could not do it. And I know it's as easy as oh, just lay down and close your eyes, but it's didn't not work that for me. simple. What does help me, though, when I don't get enough sleep is some coffee in the morning. And I have a plethora of coffee mugs at our house. No, I say I have. Really, my wife has. A lot of them are hers. I've got a couple of them that are mine. Do you drink coffee at home jake no you don't i only drink coffee here huh do you have any mugs at home no you have no mugs in your home no huh that's interesting why is that interesting it's uh it sounds like something a communist would do not have any mugs in their house are you really an american sir you gotta, <laughs> you gotta have a mug to drink stuff and out in the air force 
This is according to the Air Force Times. They apparently have mugs that cost a little bit of money. So apparently there's these special things called hot cups. Have you ever heard of these, Jake? No, I have not. Nor had I. It's essentially looks like a metal coffee travel mug with like a lid on top of it that apparently has some sort of plug that you can plug into the inside of certain air aircraft, like the, uh, the C-130, things like that. These cups are apparently incredibly expensive and very easy to break. Each one can cost the Air Force $1,220. What? Yeah, yeah. Since 2016, according to Air Force Time, the replacement cost has gone up more than $500 per cup. That means just this year, they've replaced 25 cups. And if you're not very good at math, I'll do it for you because Air Force Times did it for me. $32,000 to replace 25 of these plug-in cups. Apparently, they say there's a, a handle, like there's a plastic handle on it that's just got a design issue, and uh, they keep buying them, and people are like, well, why not not do that? Why not just have an insulated travel mug? Why does it need to be plugged in to the aircraft? Uh, the Air Force is like, well, because we're, it's a hot gotta, cup. You gotta have hot coffee. A hot cup yeah but you can put it inside of a you know a thermos that's insulated and it'll stay hot for a good long time. yeah but this is a hot cup yeah we've got hot cups look there's plugs right there for the hot cups if you don't plug the hot cup into the plug you don't use the plug for anything that's basically fraud waste and abuse <laughs> yeah that's that's how i imagine the conversation going i also imagine some conversations are coming around army bases around the world new fitness test Oh, yeah, I've heard about this. It's not in place yet, basically. It's not official. You're not going to be uh, in the Army and doing the new PT test for a couple more years, for the record. So it's gender and age neutral. What do you think about that, Jake? Because I distinctly remember being very irritated at the Navy PRT when you'd look at, here's what the males need to do, here's what the females need to do. Or age 18 to 24, I think, was one of the brackets. Like, why at 25 did I now have to do 20 less push-ups than I did at 24? Well, in the Army, it was weird. From 18 to 21, it was a certain amount. Then from 21 to 26, I believe, it went up. Because that's supposed to be the absolute best shape of your life. Hmm. But whatever. But yeah, it's. Uh, I remember in the Army, sit-ups has been gender-neutral for a while. Hmm. Because there's, they judge that men and women have the same abdominal sit-up muscles. But for the push-ups, I know a female 18 years old had to do like 14 push-ups. And I had to do like 42 yeah, and then there were some ridiculous things. Like a friend of mine who I just saw recently is still on active duty in the Navy. She's a fantastic athlete, great swimmer, swims the Navy PRT and just flies up and down the pool. We were talking about the PRT stuff, though, and I think at, at her age, and she's around the same age as me, she has to do something like five push-ups to pass <laughs> it. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But the Army's moving uh, in this direction uh, it makes sense to me, and I always thought everything should have been the same. I mean, particularly uh, today, where everybody's talking about, well, everybody's able to do the same jobs. Well, if you're able to do the same job, you better be able to lift the same amount of weight. You better be able to pull your own weight. And to do that, you have to be held to the same standards. Now, here's the question, and I don't know about this. It's called the Soldier Readiness Test. Um, 
here's what I want to know about it. Are the standards lower than they were for males on the previous Army PT test? Uh, that's a good question. Because that's the that's the problem people have. If you make it gender neutral, are you holding the females to the male standard or are you lowering the standard so that females can meet it, thus allowing males who are not in shape that would, they would have been allowed to stay in to then continue on? So, uh, you know, and it's one of those things where they'll say, oh, we're not lowering standards. Well, they're lowering some standards and raising others. So I guess they think that cancels it out when they do that. And I don't, I don't know. I really don't understand. I mean, my thing for PT is the way I've always explained PT to people outside the military is the story about one time when I was a brand new private at Fort Riley, Kansas. We were doing PT, and I asked my gunner, damn, Sergeant, why did I do so many push-ups? And he said, because Hughes, in full gear, I weigh about 250 pounds. Yeah. And if I go down in that tank, you're going to have to lift 250 pounds of dead weight eight feet straight up out of the turret. No. And I was like... Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's true. So here's uh, doing a little bit more reading here, finding out uh, the pilot program that took place at Fort Bragg for the soldier readiness test. They had to basically flip 225-pound tires, lift and drag 240-pound mannequins, 40-pound sandbags, and climb seven-foot barriers to complete their physical fitness tests. Um, yeah, I mean, that that makes sense to me. They're trying to make it more like, you know, applicable to the Army's mission of combat. And it makes me think back to my uh, pre-deployment training at Fort Dix, New Jersey, part of the Joint Base MDL, McGuire-Dix-Lakehurst. There was um, a drill that we were doing in kind of a makeshift town, you know, where you come under fire and the instructors would be like, all right, you're down, you're hit, and then you pull them off. And one of the people in my unit, that we were training with, uh, who I did, did not care for at all and cared for even less after this, started complaining that it was, why, why are you picking all the all the guys to drag the wounded off of the battlefield? Why don't you let me try that? Why don't you let us try that? And they're like, okay. So I, of course, happened to be the dead body at that point, and she could not get, she couldn't move me more than like three or four feet and basically did nothing but pull my uh, pull my body armor up into my neck and choke me. <laughs> um, so, you know, that was someone who, this new test, she wouldn't have passed it. And good, she shouldn't have been able to. If you can't do what you're supposed to do on the battlefield, bye-bye. Exactly. And that's what that it comes mean, down that to. That means someone could die. That's like if you, if you can't qualify with your rifle, get out. I mean, there, there are some very simple things with that, uh, it's, and, and it makes sense to me. I like that they're doing this because the old one was, you know, push-ups, sit-ups, and a run, essentially, right? Yeah. Did you guys have pull-ups, too? No. Two minutes push-ups, two minutes sit-ups, two-mile run. So for us, it was two minutes, two minutes, and a one-and-a-half-mile run, which, let's be honest, on a ship... <laughs> Going a mile and a half in a day, okay, but in, in 12 minutes or whatever it was supposed to be, doesn't happen very often. Um, yeah, I, I never thought it was a good gauge of your actual physical fitness because I knew people who were in horrible shape who passed it with flying colors. They just practiced those couple of things, and yep. that's all that they did. They would figure out a way to do push-ups where it was just as quick as they could, do as many as they could, where it was almost like a... Um, I don't know, not not a strength thing, but it was almost like momentum was carrying them through it and yeah. everything. Uh, and then, of course, you had the fact that people would miscount. 
sometimes on purpose. There was a, uh, I remember a, a senior chief that I was stationed with down in Florida. He was right next to me and I was doing the same amount of push-ups that he was. And then I kept going after he stopped. So we were in unison. I kept going after he stopped for another like 30 seconds. Somehow he had more than me when they tallied him up. I yeah. was like, huh. I saw Lieutenant Colonel do a PT test, and I, you can't see me obviously because we're on the radio. But his he was his arms were his elbows were like halfway to parallel. Yeah, he was just knocking them out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and I'm like one, 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 <laughs> one, one. But of course, I wasn't grading him, so I couldn't say anything. Yeah, but. I mean, and that's that's usually the way that it goes. And yeah, I'm sure I could have reported that senior chief, but that probably wasn't going to work out too well for me, so I didn't do that. Um, the 240-pound dummy, you apparently have to drag in a stretcher. So it's not even just like picking it up and carrying it, which uh, at least on this version that I'm looking at of this soldier fitness test, the Army combat readiness test and all that other stuff that they're working on doing, you should be able to pick up a body, get it over your shoulder, and move it a required distance. Like that should be the test. A stretcher, uh, how many times, if you're under fire, how many times do you have chance uh, do you have time and chance and opportunity to wrap someone up in this this stretcher that they have and then pull them out that way? I mean, it's that's that's more for after the fighting is over, not while it's taking place. But it's it's an interesting topic because it's something that's been discussed for many years, and many veterans still have a vested interest in this because we remember. I remember the fact that there were people who did the same job that I did who weren't held to the same standard that I was. And it was based on gender lines and age lines. Hey, if we're supposed to do the same job, you're supposed to be able to do everything that I am able to do. Also, you should be, you know, if, if you don't meet that standard, you should be out just like I would be out. The move to a, uh, a gender neutral test makes a lot of sense to me. The thing that I think some people are worried about is that you will see a large number specifically of females in the military not meeting that physical standard because despite what some people would like to have you believe on college campuses these days, there are huge biological differences between males and females, the way the bodies are designed, the hips, the shoulders, there's, there's just differences. There are strength differences. Uh, and it's a fact of nature. So, yeah, and it's it's not saying that there aren't women that could excel at these tests. No, it's saying are. that if you take the average, exactly that, yeah, the average male can lift uh, close to twice as much weight as the average female. I mean, it's it's biological. Yes, there are people like uh, let's say, oh, who's a good example to use? Well, not too many people would know who the one I was thinking of is. But yes, there are people like let's say cyborg. Chris, that's who I was going to say, but oh. a lot of people don't know who uh, who uh, Chris Ronda Santos Rousey. is. Ronda Rousey is probably a better one. Very strong, very talented at what she does. She's also a world-class athlete. Now, if you take her and put her up against a world-class male athlete in the same sport, she gets destroyed. I mean, it's it's the, the comparison needs to be on a, uh, a parallel basis, basically. So taking the average male, the average female. Again, my friend that I was talking about last week, much better shape, much better shape than me. Great swimmer. Great swimmer. She would probably be able to do this stuff. There will be many women who can. There will be many women who can't. And there are going to be more a, a larger percentage of women who can't do this, you know, with 200 and 200 pound tires flipping them and 240 pound dummy dragging it. It's going to be just based on biology, a larger percentage of females who are unable to complete 
the physical aspect of that test, unless they've designed it in such a way that it's basically impossible to fail, which is not something that I would put past no. the Army. I no. certainly think that they would be like, oh, yeah, look, now we've got a 100% physical fitness test passing in the whole Army. Oh, how'd you do that? Oh, don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> don't ask questions. Don't ask silly questions like that. Yeah, so it's uh, that's coming, and it's coming in the next couple of years. I think it's a good idea. Again, push-ups, sit-ups in particular, are horrible for your back. Like most, most doctors and physical trainers do not recommend that you do sit-ups. The military's like, ah, that's okay. We've been doing them for a long time. Yeah, that's okay. They used to tell pregnant women to smoke cigarettes because yeah. it would take the edge off and things like that. So, you know, sometimes you got to adapt and adjust with the times. Here's something that keeps going on time after time. VA cover-ups. And the headline of an article on ConnectingVets.com by our own Jonathan Gopanger. Another VA cover-up? Question mark. This time, it's in Tampa. So here's what's going on down there. Apparently, there have been hundreds of canceled radiology exams. Not just one or two. Hundreds down in Tampa at the James A. Haley Veterans Hospital. They say that the appointments were canceled without following the VA's guidelines. Hospital then tried to cover it up. All four radiology technicians have filed a sexual harassment and intimidation lawsuit against the medical center as well. So the people who were supposed to be doing these tests apparently uh, believe that they were working in a hostile working environment. I would imagine you just would assume that that had something to do with these canceled appointments, but hundreds of canceled radiology exams. And this is an example of the issues with the VA and why they're so difficult to address. This is one place. This wasn't happening at every VA location. This is one place. It has its issue. Then you go to the next place. It has another issue. You go to the next place it has a different issue. So many different problems at different VA facilities just like there are in the civilian medical world and we've got to remember the VA is the largest healthcare system in the country basically so it's it's massive there's a ton of locations there's going to be a bunch of uh a bunch of different uh issues going on but how would you feel about that, Jake? Radiology, getting x-rays taken and stuff like that. Appointments being canceled. You find out your appointment's canceled, and then you read the, the Connecting Vet story and find out, oh, I was one of hundreds. Would that make you angrier, or would you feel better about it because there were a whole bunch of other people that went through I'd be too? more ticked off. I mean, I really would because that means that it's, I mean, if it was just me, I'm the type of guy where I was like, okay, you know what, it happened once, whatever. But hmm. if it's happening to multiple people at the same time, that's when it becomes a systemic issue. That's when I get teched off. And this is not the first time that there have been radiology issues. Of course, there aren't radiology issues at every VA medical center. But in 2015, their South Texas Veterans Healthcare System Imaging Service was found to have 17,790 pending orders that were past a clinically indicated date. A year later, an intro into intro investigation into the W.G. Hefner. For a second, I thought that said Hugh Hefner. I was like, <laughs> they got a medical center named after the Playboy guy? In Salisbury, North Carolina, found more than 3,300 patients waiting for radiology exams some had been waiting since 2007. This is in 2016. Nine years. So here's the thing. 
when we talk about the VA and we talk about the medical care, the medical care is very good. Most people are happy with the medical care they receive at the VA. Not all, most. The bureaucracy is a problem. And here's where I laugh at people when they tell me, well, it's the same in the civilian world. You would never wait nine years for a radiology appointment, a radiology exam, nine years, eight years, nine years, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. You wouldn't wait a year in the civilian medical world because it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. I don't understand how it can happen. And this is why the addition of the government bureaucracy, that level of government bureaucracy to a healthcare system like the VA is a problem because it allows things like this to happen. It's like any time, did you ever have any issues with like pay or anything like that in the military or, or getting something times, like a yeah. government credit card? I got a government credit card when I was a public affairs officer for a recruiting district. Every time I used the thing for travel, it became this whole thing where I ended up having to pay it off out of my own pocket because they could never reimburse me fast enough to do that. And I would end up getting the money like a year later. It was insane. And it's it, it's just an example of how things work within the government. There's this level of paperwork and bureaucracy and all of it that just adds up to creating more and more problems to a level that, all right, listen, Stop saying that everything's the same in the civilian system as it is. It is absolutely not. Nine years people at this Hefner VA Medical Center were waiting for radiology exams. Nine years. Almost a decade some people had been waiting. For If one person happened in the civilian world like that, there would be a lawsuit that would shut that hospital down. It's... Uh, it's insane to me to have to read about things like this, but that's pretty much what we do at ConnectingVets.com. Finding all those stories, finding all the things that can help you live your best veteran life. And one example of that, Jake, is the Benefits in My Backyard segment, also done by Jonathan Copanger. He focuses on a lot of VA stuff and benefit stuff. Oklahoma is the focus this time. So like my buddy Corey, who was one of my groomsmen from Weatherford, Oklahoma, this has a bunch of good information for him. He might know about some of it. He might know about all of it. But if you don't know about it and you live in Oklahoma, uh, which is your favorite state, Jake, the state of Oklahoma? Oh, yeah. Number one favorite. Being from Texas, most people from Texas really love Oklahoma. So I just kind of assumed. It's, for- like, Ameri- it's like Texas's hat. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Taxes, not Texas, taxes. Oklahoma waives either 10000 or 75% of retirement income from taxation if you're a retired military member. For property taxes, if you have 100% permanent disabled service-connected disability, you may be exempt from paying property tax, you'll need honorable discharge, letter of the disability certified by the VA. First, $1,500 of active duty pay is deducted from taxable income. Motor vehicle exemptions can be claimed on one vehicle for three years by any single qualifying veteran. Uh, That's pretty interesting there. Education, career tech for vets, a Heroes Promise scholarship, National Guard tuition waiver, uh, let's see, career veterans receive points, and they do in a lot of states, so this is something that you want to check on for state jobs. That's for open and open non-promotional examinations for state jobs. Disabled veterans with 30% or more service-connected disability may be hired directly. 10 points for veterans with written proof of a service-connected disability, 
five points for veterans with honorable discharge, unremarried surviving spouse of veteran, or spouse of veterans who are unemployable due to service-connected disability. Uh, there's also a pretty interesting one here that just pops out to me. The Tulsa Glassblowing School, Jake. So you could oh. go and make glass jewelry and ornaments and things like that. They have a free six-week glassblowing program for veterans. So you can go up into Tulsa, which is up in the mountains. That's in like northeast Oklahoma. Uh, old buddy of mine from Long Island moved out there and uh, seemed to enjoy it pretty well. A free six-week glass blowing program. Fishing and hunting licenses. If you have at least a 60% service-connected disability, you can buy a lifetime hunting or fishing license for $25. Veterans with less than 60% disability may purchase the same license license for $200. That's not a bad deal. Yeah, no, not those really. Sta- those states out there where hunting is more a way of life, you do anything around here where you try to go hunting, it is such a pain in the rear end. Not as bad as New York uh, down here in, in the Virginia and Maryland area, but still a gigantic pain. And $200 for a lifetime hunting and fishing license? That's pretty good. Yeah, I'll do that. Admission to state parks is free for veterans with an honorable discharge. And if you're a current resident of Oklahoma, all state-owned or state-operated parks and museums, all you need is a driver's license, proof of your discharge. Here's the question about that. I wonder if they accept those new ID cards. Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know. And I don't know if Senator Johnny Isaacson has one, but he's certainly eligible. Served in the Air National Guard down there in Georgia, now serving in the United States Senate and is chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. And he will join us on the morning briefing in just a moment. Eric Dame, JQs, back after this. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing, brought to you by Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets Every Day is our slogan because it's what we do. Each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn that uniform and just as importantly, knows what it's like to have taken it off for the last time. So check us out at ConnectingVets.com and on social media where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest also knows what it's like to wear that uniform, wearing it in the Air National Guard, and now wearing it sort of a different uniform as the, basically, one of the most important senators when it comes to veterans' issues. He is Senator Johnny Isaacson of Georgia. Senator, good morning, and thank you so much for joining us on the morning briefing today. Good to be with you, Eric. Thank you. Uh, First question, before we get into the nitty-gritty of what's going on in the world of legislation as it pertains to veterans, I wanted to ask you, it's been quite a while since you served in the Air National Guard down in Georgia. What would you say is the biggest difference between the transition period for you moving into veteran status back then to those who are getting out of the military today? What would you say is the biggest difference between those eras? Well, the, the benefits now are more robust. The uh, challenges are, 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 are many more than they used to be, and, and the uh, movement of individual transit of individuals moving around is makes it more cumbersome as well but we are trying our best to meet the demands and meet the needs but one of our biggest problems is a lot of veterans fall through the cracks because they don't get the right transitional help from dod health care to va health care and that causes a lot of them to have problems they shouldn't have so we're doing everything we can to reach out to see too we have a good connection for every veteran the minute they put off and take the uniform off and put on the veterans patch 
And that, of course, is important, and it's been a big focus of recent legislative movement within the veteran community, including right. the Mission Act. Uh, wanted to get your thoughts on the Mission Act and why you thought that was an important and positive piece of legislation for veterans. How do you view the Mission Act in general? Well, first of all, it, it simplifies and answers the question, how do I get my care? Because it allows the veteran to go to the VA or go to the doctor of their choice uh, that they choose in the community they're in to get their health care service and to not have to wait for time periods to go by or certain requirements to be met. We basically have repealed the 30-mile rule and the 40-mile and the 40 40 rule so that any veteran at any time can choose a private provider or the VA provider, whichever suits them best. That's going to see to it they get faster service, quicker service, and generally uh, the ability to get services closer to their home, which is a tremendous aid to the veteran. From an outsider's perspective, Senator, it seemed that there was, uh, of course, a huge amount of support for the Mission Act. Was this a difficult piece of legislation to get through, or was it relatively easy to get support on both sides of the aisle for it? Well, everybody recognized the problem. The, the ease was to find out that to be, be able to encourage people to realize that we were doing what we could do to make sure we got rid of the problem permanently for our vets and, and did so at a cost we could afford. And I think we did that. Uh, there were some but not many, a few, who voted against it because they said it was a move towards privatization of the VA, which is the furthest thing from the truth. It's the opposite. It ensures the VA has a long and vital life in helping our veterans, but it also ensures our veterans aren't tied to the VA to get their health care if they can get it from the private sector in a more convenient and timely fashion. So it passed with overwhelming odds in the House and the Senate. It's been received well around the country in the early days of its inception, and I think it's going to be seen as one of the really great reforms that this administration's made for our veterans. There is other legislation. Of course, the Mission Act was fantastic. It's important, but it's not the last thing that's going to be relating to veterans. It makes its way through Congress. Right now, we've got the Blue Water Navy Agent Orange legislation that made it through the House on its way to the Senate. We've got burn pit legislation recently introduced by Representatives Gabbard and Mast, and just heard from IAVA recently that uh, there's a companion Senate bill that may be working its way through. Uh, what are the big-ticket veterans items on your radar as the chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. Are, are those the big ones, or is there anything else that you're looking out for? Well, two years ago, I, I said as chairman that my goal to this year for this year would be to bring about a total reform to VA, but whatever we did to be sure we got caregiver benefits for all vets, not just the vets that covered before, and make sure our Vietnam-era veterans had caregiver benefits because they really need them more than anybody else, and they were not improved. And in the Mission Act, we include caregiver benefits to all our veterans, which is a tremendous step forward in terms of benefits to the Vietnam-era veterans and those who weren't previously covered by it. Blue Water Navy takes that same role this coming two years. We need to address the Blue Water Naval problem we've, that we've had. We've got some scientific and medical data we've got to go ahead and adopt as presumptive. Once we get that done, I think we'll be able to handle it, and I think we'll be able to get the Blue Water Navy benefits established so that those who served in the combat zones but on ships were, were exposed to napalm and the other agents that are cancer-causing get the same benefits that those that did not get. 
You know, it's an unfortunate fact, Senator, that because of the delay in getting those benefits extended to those sailors who are off the coast of Vietnam, uh, some of them are gone now. Some of them have passed away, quite likely from the effects of Agent Orange. And looking back at how long it's taken to get to this point with those benefits, do you worry that we might have a similar issue with burn pits as they relate to the veterans coming from Iraq and Afghanistan? Do you think that's something we need to take care of before we have another Blue Water Navy type situation on our hands. Well, you don't want to have a, uh, a unnecessary death in an untimely fashion when a benefit should have been there for a veteran period. On the same token, when you're talking about establishing a presumption of responsibility on behalf of the VA and a reimbursement on behalf of the veteran, you've got to make sure you're right because you're talking about a not just that one person, but you're talking about potentially thousands of people. We've got to do a faster job of responding. Quite frankly, the Blue Water Navy is a pretty good example of something being kicked around the corner too often and not dealt with. That's not going to be the case anymore now. And on burn pits, we'll do that as well. We, we had a burn pit issue at Fort Bragg when I was on the committee, not as chairman, but I'm aware of that. I've been to Fort, Fort Bragg. I've seen where the problem was and aware of the problems that confront a number of our troops in, in Iraq in terms of the use of uh, burn pits uh, to to get away, get rid of stuff. So it's something with its timely, it's something we ought to get done. I think we'll get done within this next two-year cycle. We're speaking with Senator Johnny Isaacson, representing the great state of Georgia and also representing veterans as chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. Because of that position, Senator, you've had uh, a very close eye, I'm sure, on everything that's been going on over at the VA, uh, an organization that was seen as kind of the crown jewel of the current administration, ran into some issues late last year, early this year. It looks like we'll now have another secretary of the VA confirmed. It's looking like Robert Wilkie is going to get there. How have you viewed the situation as it's unfolded, and what do you think uh, Wilkie will bring to the table as secretary if confirmed? Well, first of all, uh, I, I thought a lot of Dr. Shulkin. I'm sorry that uh, he's not still there. He knew he is a physician and, and a practicing military man. He knew a lot about the demands of the VA, knew a lot about the medical needs of the veterans, and I'm, I'm sorry he's not there. He did a good job while he was there. I'm equally sorry that the next first nominee to replace him, uh, Mr. Jackson, Admiral Jackson, did not work out from a standpoint of confirmation. I do think that Mr. Wilkie obviously has the pedigree, having served twice been confirmed by the Senate for other positions in the Pentagon and, and in the military. And having met him and gotten to talk to him, I can tell you he's an extremely accomplished individual who's got a veteran's history himself and a lifetime history of association with the military. I think he would be a good secretary if confirmed. We will have that confirmation hearing on this Tuesday of this week, and hopefully we'll get it to the White House as soon as we can to get him confirmed. What do you think is the first item of business that Secretary Wilkie, if confirmed, needs to focus on? What's number one that you think he needs to uh, take a look at and take head on over at the VA? Job job one is to get the, the, the issues that we've passed to deal with our problems, get them in place and get them done. Make sure that the uh, caregivers' benefits they now have are being implemented immediately so the veterans can get them. Make sure the appeals process to expedite appeals of benefits, decisions by, made by the VA is expedited and done. Make sure that we get the, all the things that we've been talking about and bragging about that we finally accomplished. We now have got a finally accomplishment as a reality for the benefit to be available to the veteran, and that's job one. We don't need any more challenges right now. We need to get the job done on the things we passed to, to address our challenges. 
Absolutely. Legislation being passed through is fantastic, but until it's put into place and is working properly, uh, it's basically just a piece of paper. So I, I remember grandmother used to say the proof's in the pudding. <laughs> it certainly is, Senator. Uh, you know, and one of those issues that's related to caregivers, related to the VA, related to uh, everything within the veteran community is suicide. And we've seen some recent data come out that while the overall numbers of military and veteran suicides are down, the rate is growing. And that's, of course, because the veteran community is shrinking as the World War II generation leaves us, the Korean War generation leaves us. There are fewer Vietnam veterans every day. What do you think we can do to combat this issue of a growing suicide rate among the veteran and military communities? Well, we've got to uh, we, we've got to face the music on three or four fronts. First of all, the VA has got to provide the mental health timely, the mental health benefits to the veterans to see to they get help when they need it. And we've made a greater step forward in the last year by getting the three national hotlines manned and in place where our veterans, if they call our hotline, they don't get an answering machine, they don't get a wrong number, they don't get a busy signal to get a human being, a mental health expert on the phone to deal with their initial contact. They get a referral mail based on the evaluation of that contact, and they get services within as many hours, a few hours as possible from the time they made that call. It is, we have done an amazing job of getting these calls handled and getting them referred immediately. One of the biggest problems when someone is at risk to take their own life, time is everything. If they, if they call a hotline to say, I'm in trouble, you need to get something to them now, not tomorrow, not in two weeks, not in any other time, but now. We're doing a better job of that, and I think that will help us in terms of lowering the number of suicides or the rate of suicide that takes place. Also, being willing to talk about it. I mean, there are a lot of people who it's not a pleasant subject. Suicide is a reality of our society. It's a reality of societies around the world, and it's a problem we must confront, and you confront it through asking questions, through talking, through doing good listening, and giving somebody a chance to tell you their problem so you can attack it early on rather than wait until it's too late. Too many people only want to discuss it, Senator, after it's hit too close to home, and we need That's to exactly uh, right. have those conversations earlier on. I can I can tell you from so many guests we've had here on the show uh, that that is certainly the case. Of course, that's bad news, that the suicide rate is growing. There's also some positive news in the veteran community, with recent statistics relating to veteran employ- employment showing that much like the national unemployment rate, the veteran unemployment rate has gone down. How happy are you about that, and how much more work do you think there still needs to be done to make Make sure that every veteran's doing their their part to contribute and, and happy in a career. Well, I'm empl- I'm happy. Obviously, the employment rate is rising and, and improving. I, I'm not happy until it's totally eliminated and every veteran that wants a job has a job. But I think the movement of our economy, the tax law that Congress passed now in place, the things that the VA has done, we just getting ready to confirm a undersecretary of labor who's who's signed nothing but veterans employment. Uh, those things are going to make a big difference to get that unemployment rate down even further. And that would be certainly an important thing. We want everybody out there who's able to work, going to work. And, of course, uh, there are those who stop working, those retirees. And we've had an issue that's come up here, Senator, where I wanted to get your thoughts on this. The... Armed Forces Committee was apparently looking to increase TRICARE insurance charges for retirees this year after they were told just six months ago that they would be exempt. This is in the House. Of course, you're the chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. It's two separate organizations. But what do you think about the fact that it looks like those retirees, these veterans who did 20 years plus, it looks like they were lied to from an outside perspective. What do you think about that? And what can you tell us about this issue so far? 
Well, I don't know enough about the facts to know whether they were lied to or not, and I'm not going to accuse anybody of lying unless I know that's what happened. I, I, I think if, if they were... There was misinformation out there that needs to be corrected, whatever the case might be. But I can't really respond to the question but without right. appearing to confirm or deny. And I don't know either, whether either one of them is true or not. So Okay. Well, that's totally understandable. Uh, totally understand on that. But this is something that you know our, our, our audience has been very concerned about. And when it comes to benefits that are available to veterans and retirees, there's a lot of worry that benefits uh, in general, not specifically re- relating to health care or TRICARE or anything like that, that there may be cuts coming to benefits uh, in the future. Is that something that people should be worried about? Or is the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, House Veterans Affairs Committee, committed to making sure that the vet, uh, the veterans' benefits that we have remain in place? I think we ought to see to it that the benefits that we have in place stay in place and the veterans get what they've been promised. I, think, I don't think we ought to retroactively take away a benefit. In fact, you can't, you, you can't retroactively take, about, take away benefits without causing horrible problems anyway. But what we've got to also start doing is recognizing that the rate of increase in the future of a benefit declining is not a cut and that benefit, there are a lot of people that, that take that argument and say, well, if you're going to c- cut my benefit from uh, 8% of something to 7% of something in the future, not what you've earned now, but in the future, that's a cut in my benefit. No, it's not. It's a change in the benefit in the future that you're going to make, and that's what we're going to have to do in Social Security. We cannot afford a two tr- $20 trillion deficit forever. We cannot afford to have the money going out the window that's not getting, coming back in somewhere else to pay for it. And we have got to means test our benefits in Social Security and Medicare for the future to see to it that we can afford our benefits. From my grandchildren that are 6 to 26, they don't need to be paying the same thing I'm paying for for Medicare and for Social Security. They could ought to pay more because they're going to work longer, they're going to live longer, they're going to be a bigger burden on the system. But as long as we put off those increases for the future, we're going to end up running running the risk of coming back retroactively and having to cut benefits in the past, which I will never support ever. I'm for making all benefits accountable for the time in which they were passed and seeing to any benefits that are added on in the future or paid for in the future. If we start having that type of attitude, then nobody's going to get any money taken out of their pocket, and we're going to run the system far more responsibly. We're speaking with the chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, Senator Johnny Isaacson of Georgia. And there are a lot of people who want to join you on Capitol Hill, specifically veterans that are running for office this midterm election season, Senator Isaacson. What do you think about the number of veterans that are seeking national office, specifically in the House of Reps and the Senate? And are you happy to see that there are more veterans getting involved in politics? You know, I am glad to see it. I'm I'm very glad to see it. And I think it's a good resume item for someone running for office to have served in our military because quite frankly i don't know what the number is today but if i'm not mistaken the number of veterans in the united states house and the united states senate is now below 30 percent i think i'm right you may know and i don't yes sir you are but it's below 30 percent and that's you know you've heard the old saying seeing is believing well seeing is believing when you talk about service in the military you have to really have done it to totally grasp the impact i've had a couple of cases where i was asked to go on a codel to afghanistan or iraq because I was the everybody that was going that was from the Congress had never been in the service, and they wanted somebody who had been in the service to go with them. That's not very good when you're talking about the people that pass your budget, establish your policies, and establish your priorities for the future. So I'm glad there are more vets willing to run. Hope everybody get them a good look, and hope they'll uh, be successful.
Do you think that that can contribute to a uh, you know an improvement of relations between both sides of the aisle when we look at issues like this burn pit legislation put forward by Congresswoman Mast and Con- or Congress Congressman Mast and Congresswoman Gabbard? These are two people uh, very different ideologies uh, from different sides of the aisle, but have been able to come together uh, to work on this and to understand each other. Do you think more veterans in Congress will mean more of that happening? Well, it should, but I'll, I'll tell you this. Now, we proved in the Senate committee, uh, with the vote on the Mission Act in committee to vote it out to go to the floor was 14 to 1. Seven Democrats and seven Republicans voted for One Republican voted against it. So we had a 14 to 1. That's a pretty good bipartisan vote. And we did that in a lot of other bills as well. The, 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 it's essential to have legislation have a, both fingerprints on it, or you're never going to be fortunate. We don't have... A, veterans who are democrats and veterans who are republicans we have veterans who served in the military and we need to get, we don't need to partisanize that service any more than it already gets partisanized from time to time something that i think a lot of people will agree with and something i'd like to hear a little bit more of in this current political climate that yes let's all work together to get things done one thing that we wanted to bring up, a few people in the newsroom made, wanted to make sure that I asked you about this, and I know the VSOs have been very involved in it, uh, as have a number of other organizations, and that is the issue of medical marijuana. As it relates to the VA, there's basically no work being done on even research to find out if it works or not. Seems to be a lot of support for this within the veteran community, within the VSO community, even organizations that a few years ago uh, didn't seem to want to touch the issue with a 10-foot pole. How likely do you think we are to see any movement on the VA being able to look at medical marijuana and do that research, at least in the near future? I wouldn't harbor a guess or a prediction in terms of time. I would just simply say this, that, and I, I'm not the most knowledgeable person on this subject to talk about it, but cannabis oil, which is a derivative of the marijuana plant or hemp, uh, has proven, as I understand it, for seizures like and things like epilepsy to have a positive effect on those uh, those ailments. There have been a lot of places where medical marijuana has been used as a way to get marijuana for other purposes on the streets of this, those states or cities where it's been a problem. So I think you've got a real question you got to answer on your hands, and that is, do I, am I looking at this issue from purely the medical benefit and the patient benefit, or am I looking at it as a, a backdoor way to get back into the legal legalizing a level, a level one or level two drug? And I'm not for legalizing anything that's currently on the schedules. I think we got those on the schedules for a reason. If somebody comes up with compelling information where we should do it, that'll be fine. I'll consider it. But until then, I'm not. Okay. Well, I understand it. And at least able to give an explanation for it instead of just saying, nope, it's bad and I don't like it. It's good to hear that you have a reason behind not wanting to legalize it. Of course, it's something that has been shown, as you said, with CBD oil being uh, helpful. Certainly something that I think most people hope the VA is able to at least research, if nothing else, to find out the validity of those treatments. Well, we've been speaking with the chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, Senator Johnny Isaacson of Georgia. Senator, if there's one message you could give to the veteran community at large right now, what would it be on the direction that the country is heading in regards to veterans and veteran benefits and so on? What I would say as chairman of the committee in the Senate, if you have a problem with the VA, call your local congressman or your United States senator in your state. Let them know what that problem is. The better we know what you're dealing with out there in the field, the better we can respond to it in the Congress. So don't ever hesitate to call and give us thanks give thanks when you get something you've done for you but call us when you haven't gotten a good service or when you've had a problem we want to find out where the problems are and get them corrected
Certainly the squeaky wheel gets the grease, as they used to say. Well, Senator Johnny Isaacson, thank you so much for joining us here on The Morning Briefing. It's been really great talking to you, and we appreciate your time, sir. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. You know, Jake, since we started doing this show, I've learned quite a bit more about how legislation works, because before... I never really cared too much. I thought, all right, well, they passed this bill. It's now a law, so it's done. Everything's good. Not necessarily the case, as we were just talking to Senator Isaacson about. Yeah, Schoolhouse Rocks lied to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you think something gets put into law, and then it's just like, okay, awesome. It's done. Now it's a law. Everybody abides by it. No, they have to figure out how to implement it. They have to figure out how to get everything in place. They have to figure out how to pay for it. It's uh, it's a process that continues after the voting is done. And the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, of course, is going to keep an eye on the Mission Act, the Blue Water Navy uh, legislation that we talked about, the Burn Pit legislation. Uh, a good conversation there with Senator Isaacson. Listen, I don't agree with him on everything. I do not think that marijuana belongs as a Schedule One narcotic. <laughs> I do not think that is... He says there's a reason for it. I have yet to see it, other than... You know, some some really shady stuff that happened back in the day because a newspaper magnate was worried that hemp would replace his lumber yards that he was using for uh, to make his paper mill and all that stuff. So I, I think that that's one that needs to be looked at a little bit more closely. The senator brings up an interesting point, one that I've heard from a lot of people on the marijuana issue, and that is that. He worries that the medical aspect, like medical marijuana, will be used as a cover, essentially, to just get the stuff and get it out on the streets and everything. Like saying, oh, I have glaucoma, or I yeah. have arthritis, right. or I have this, give me weed. Yeah, well, and you know what? That happens with all sorts of medications, so yeah. that certainly is a concern. Here's the thing. It ain't going to kill anybody like opioids are. It ain't going to kill anybody like uh, various prescription medications and antidepressants and antipsychotics and things like that, so I, I think we're seeing movement on this issue. Clearly, we're seeing movement on the issue uh, in a direction that's moving towards it being legalized and and one of the things uh, that's interesting as well as he was talking about it getting out onto the streets well in quite a few states it's legal out on the streets now in washington dc it's legal on the streets washington dc has some issues with uh who's allowed to sell it and all that stuff that makes it one of those things where it's like it's legal to have it it's not legal to sell it so there's still some illegal things going on there but that's one issue where uh you know i, th- I think it sounds like he has strong opinions on it. I don't know if it's something that he might come around on eventually. I hope so, because I do think that at least looking at it for research purposes, what's the harm in that? And then if it turns out that it is very helpful, I think that overrides the concerns about it. Again, as he said, getting out onto the streets and becoming uh, a big problem out there. I just don't see that as as big a problem as some of the things that people are dealing with. Uh, He did also mention CBD oil on that one. And this is a topic uh, we talked about a lot during this whole interview. But this is a topic that a lot of people in our newsroom and a lot of other people are very interested in. CBD oil is uh, it's shown to be very effective for treating seizures and things like that. It's also uh, doesn't have any of the uh, most for the most part doesn't have the properties of marijuana. It doesn't get you high. It's basically a topical oil that you put on. And it's an interesting thing. There's a lot of interesting things to discuss. And it's an interesting times for veterans. And Mr. Johnny Isaacson, senator from the great state of Georgia. Thank you so much to him for joining us to talk about some of the issues facing us as veterans as he heads up the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. You can find out more about them by, well, go look up Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. Google is your friend, baby. You're listening to The Morning Briefing. We'll be back in just a moment with Justin Brown, founder and CEO of Hill Vets. Morning Briefing, back after this.
helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing, brought to you by Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. That's the slogan, and it's what we do. Each and every member of our team is a veteran. They know what it's like to have worn that uniform and to have taken that uniform off for the last time. That's why they're using their expertise, their skills, their talents to find the stories, the benefits, the things that can help you live your best veteran's life, and they are putting them up each and every day on ConnectingVets.com. So go ahead and check out the website, and be sure to follow us on social media, where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is, of course, a veteran himself. He's also a veteran of the Hill Vets organization, the founder and CEO of Hill Vets, Mr. Justin Brown. Justin, good morning. How are you today? Hey, I'm fantastic. How are you doing, Eric? You know, I'm doing okay. I've got these, like, I keep feeling like I need to yawn, and I don't know why that is, and I feel like just saying that word made me want to do it again. So let's move on Get to talking out. about Let's move on to talking about some, some good veteran issues related to Capitol Hill. Of course, we just spoke with Senator Johnny Isaacson, the chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. He's going to have a big day today, Justin, as they all are, because today is the day that they're apparently going to confirm Robert Wilkie. What more can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, from, you know, what it, it appears that this is pretty much going to be uh, a, a done deal. I mean, there, you know, if you remember uh, with uh, Dr. David Shulkin, the president referred to him as his 100 to 0 man uh, before uh, essentially firing him a few months later. But, you know, because of some of the challenges that I think we saw with um, uh, Dr. David Shulkin uh, and, and, and some of the concerns uh, from some of the, especially uh, Senate Democrats with regards to privatization, uh, I don't see a scenario where this turns into a 100 to, to 0 situation. But at the same time, I have little doubt that he's going to get confirmed um, at his Senate confirmation hearing. Uh, the week before last, uh, he did he did a great job uh, to the point where uh, Senator Tester actually praised uh, his 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 hearing, uh, highlighting you know the fact that he thought he was very polished. Um, you know, th- th- there was kind of a double-edged sword to that statement in, in in kind of highlighting that you know he'd been down this road before, he'd been confirmed for another position. Uh, but at the same time, he was he was saying all of the right things uh, in terms of what was kind of expected for him to need to say in order to get this confirmation. So at this juncture, it looks like it's it's all but you know waiting for the the vote to occur, uh, and then we'll have a new VA secretary. And I can tell you from from our perspective, uh, you know we're 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 you know as an organization, we're excited about this pick. Uh, Robert Wilkie is a former Hill staffer. Uh, you know, that's a lot of the hard work we try to do here in trying to bring veterans to Capitol Hill, be it, you know, via, uh, you know, we, we certainly re- uh, welcome the elected members, but we also try to get uh, veterans positions in these staff positions, which have become critically important in analyzing the policy positions that these members of Congress take uh, and and are often taken for granted. And, and there are very few 
military service members and veterans that, that fill these roles, in fact, less than 2%. So we're, we're excited about uh, uh, Robert Wilkie, and, um, you know, certainly there are a number of uh, legitimate concerns that are being brought up from uh, numerous members in terms of, you know, where the uh, president's agenda wants to go in terms of the future of the VA. And, and he answered a lot of those tough questions two weeks ago. And it's interesting that you bring that up because that's something that we touched on with Senator Isaacson. The fact that when uh, other senators and members of Congress were heading over to Iraq and Afghanistan, he was often getting invites to go along with these groups because none of them had ever served before and they wanted someone who had worn the uniform. So uh, there's actually a higher percentage of veterans in Congress than, than we make up of the population. But as you've pointed out several times and as you've said is the biggest concern to you in Washington, D.C., the number of veterans on those staff positions is so low. I asked Senator Isaacson, you know, whether he'd like to see more veterans on Capitol Hill, both in elected positions and in those. He said, yes, of course. And uh, you feel the same way. I know. How do we go about doing that? What, what do we need to do to get more veterans on these staff positions where they're helping the Congress people and, and the senators and the representatives who haven't served understand a little bit more about it? Sure. Well, you can, you can always help uh, Hill vets <laughs> as an organization. I mean, that's largely uh, what we're very focused on is building the network of veterans in, in our nation's capital uh, because we believe in the value that they bring uh, to the future of our government. Um, veterans have a history of putting their country first. Um, and there are a few, you know, there are a few uh, uh, political, well, it's not political, there, there, there are a few um uh, identities that trump partisan politics and veteran status is one of them. Uh, I don't care if you're a Marine Democrat or a Marine Republican. If, if you're a Marine, you're going to talk to that other Marine uh, and be able to have that base level of trust. Uh, and, 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 and veterans have really just proven themselves on Capitol Hill over time. And, you know, we're faced with a Congress right now that has a near record low of uh, military service. Uh, in elected office, but also in staff positions. And, and to some degree, it shows. Uh, you know, a lot of these other non-veteran uh, members of Congress, a lot of these other non-veteran uh, staff members, it, you know, the, the, their party is their holy grail. Uh, and, and to some degree, I think with veterans, that's not necessarily uh, the case. doesn't mean that they don't come in and do a really good job for their party and that they don't believe in, uh, you know, some fundamental beliefs that each of their party represents. Uh, but at the end of the day, they can cross the aisle and especially talk to other veterans and then make tough choices and tough considerations to put to put our nation before uh, their party, because they've done that before. That's probably the, re the reason they came up here in the first place. And, and that continues to hold true even as they stay in and, and get uh, introduced to all of the, the, the tough, uh, you know, influences that might sway a person here in Washington, D.C. And, of course, Washington, D.C. is where Hill Vets plies their trade. We're speaking to the founder and CEO of that organization, Mr. Justin Brown, a fine Navy veteran. So when it comes to Wilkie getting in there, access to veterans care, uh, that's what Senator Isaac said is, Isaacson said needs to be the number one focus right off the bat. First thing he's got to deal with. What are some of the other issues that you think he's got to take head on and early on in his tenure as secretary of the VA, assuming he gets confirmed today? Sure. Well, access to care is, is certainly, uh, you know, a high-level priority issue. And I think that that's been a priority for, you know, we can go back 
at least as far as uh, Secretary Shinseki, who who listed his three priorities as uh, access. Uh, at that time, the claims backlog was just a complete mess. Um, you know, this secretary gets to deal with the VA appeals backlog, which, you know, has been going in the right direction. Um, uh, secretary Shinseki listed his third priority as homelessness. So you, my point is, is, you know, these all the secret all these new secretaries are coming in with priorities. Um, you know, they they certainly move a little bit, but for the most part, they're dealing with a lot of the same issues. So, in terms of healthcare, you know, you've certainly got the access issue. Uh, VA is the largest consolidated healthcare system uh, in 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 the country, if not the world, and you're always going to have challenges in terms of getting veterans in front of the doctors that they need to get in front of. And, and that's, that's a fact in, in, in with, with non-VA healthcare as well. I mean, there, there, there's a shortage of uh, specialty practitioners across the country, in, particularly in certain places. Um, you know, our nation is in a mental health care crisis right now. And, you know, so we have a lot of um, issues that need to be addressed both as a nation, but specifically as the VA secretary, he's going to have to deal with uh, many of those issues. Homelessness is still a problem, right? So uh, VA Secretary Shinseki did not eliminate homelessness. We still have veterans who are homeless, um, you know, and then we have a number of new laws that have recently gone into place that he's going to have to enact or or, or roll out. Um, uh, Certainly the VA Accountability uh, Act, which, you know, requires him to take a hard look at his staff gives him more leverage in terms of how to how to let non-performing staffers go, but then also doing the right thing and and, and making sure that that doesn't turn into a political tool uh, to let go of people simply because you know their views don't necessarily politically align um, with the administration. So he's he's certainly walking a tightrope, um, and and you know he 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 indicated that his. Uh, Senate confirmation hearing that you know he was he was his own leader and that he was going to uh, be the man in charge and th- those were some of the issues that I think got Dr. David Shulkin in a lot of trouble. It was unclear who was steering the ship, and and um, you know there there was con- concern that there were other political influences within uh, the VA that were um, undermining him and. Those issues were brought to bear at the Senate hearing, and so it's going to be interesting to see if, if indeed, he can kind of chart his own path um, and, and 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 execute it. That is part of the question, as you said, Tester bringing up those concerns. Uh, the quote from him saying, "We have seen VA political appointees work actively and publicly to undermine a secretary and deputy deputy secretary who were unanimously confirmed by the Senate." How does he avoid that? Is it just about picking all his own people? Is it uh, a total changeover at the top of the VA? Him replacing everybody there? How does he deal with that? Yeah, I mean, it's honestly he's he's going to be right you know, walking a tightrope. Um, I, I find it unlikely that he's going to be able to come in and, and clean shop of the existing political appointees. Um, and I don't know for a fact that he is going to view them uh, as a threat, depending on where he is on some tough uh, political issues. And then also, you know, what the marching orders were from the administration in terms of him coming into that office, if that makes sense. Um, if it's been made clear uh, from the White House that, uh, that 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 
know, as soon as he becomes Secretary Wilkie, he is the man in charge and that, um, you know, there will be no toleration for uh, any other political appointees, um, you know, uh, you know, undermining him or, or, or going around him or leaking information to the press, um, you know, then he's, he's, you know, he should be in, in good shape. Um, if that's not the case, he's going to have a very difficult time where, you know, he's, he's going to be unable to trust subordinates. Um, you know, and we saw this with Dr. David Shulkin. He started to isolate himself or it appeared he was isolating himself. I'm sure you can remember where, you know, there were, there were, there were stories being leaked where he was you know, planting a security guard in front of his door um, and not inviting uh, a number of people to key meetings. Um, you know, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see, uh, you know, how his dynamic works in terms of, you know, the overall shop. And, but, uh, you know, you got to you got to give a you got to you got to have a good faith effort and that, you know, I think he's going to be able to come in. I think it's been made clear that he is the man in charge and, uh, you know, he appears to have an agenda moving forward. And and uh, let's see if he can carry it out. But he is he is walking a fine line. He is going to have to deal with this very difficult um, political question in terms of, you know, where he is on uh, privatization and reality. Um, so his his actions are really going to be what it what are perceived in terms of where he is on that issue. Now, in Senate testimony, he said there's no way he's interested in, you know, he has zero intent of privatizing the VA, um, you know, and he did talk about access to care issues, um, but really it's going to be, you know, the perception of what he does with, uh, you know, the, the, the program formerly known as choice now known as mission, I think. And, um, you know, is he, completely focused on that program and getting more money to that program, or is he actually going to be invested in building the best VA that veterans deserve? That is the question question that we may get answers to soon as basically they're looking at confirming Robert Wilkie as secretary of the VA later on today. What's the time frame on it, Justin? Do you know when they're going to start discussing that and how long it typically takes? Yeah, I haven't looked at the the, the floor schedule, but um, it, it is looking like it will be today at some juncture. So, um, by by no later than the end of the day, I would expect to see uh, a vote. Um, and you know, it, it, my assumption is is it's going to be pretty pretty quick. Yeah, and that is something that, uh, again, as we talked to uh, Senator Isaacson yesterday, played that interview this morning, something that he uh, he thinks he's the right man for the job and looks like we'll get a chance to find out here sooner rather than later with that confirmation coming later on today. Everybody seeming to expect it to go through, so barring some last minute, I don't even know what. <laughs> it looks like Robert Wilkie by tomorrow will be Secretary of the VA. Keeping it on Capitol Hill, Justin, the House Veterans Affairs Committee has a business meeting to assign new members to a new HVAC. That's not heating, venting, and air conditioning, but House Veterans Affairs Committee. Subcommittee and full committee markup on pending legislation on July 12th. What does that all mean? Does that mean that they're starting to, they're looking at moving some more legislation forward for veterans? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there will be a full committee markup on on legislation that's been considered at uh, some of the lower levels. Um, so it goes, you know, a bill is first considered at a subcommittee, that is then marked up to the full committee, and then it's sent to the House floor for consideration for a vote. 
Um, but what's really interesting here is is, is not so much the, the markup, which is pretty commonplace, um, although there is, is likely some important legislation in there. Uh, it's really the, 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 the new House Veterans Affairs Subcommittee. Um, so the House Veterans Affairs Committee, uh, following the, the um, uh, there was a, a, a sole uh, source authorization for what is likely the, the biggest contract, or at least sole source contract in VA's history, uh, was assigned to uh, Cerner to create a new electronic health care record for the VA. Now, the initial price tag on this was $10 billion. Uh, you've got me on the record as saying it's going to be far in excess of $15 billion um, over time. Uh, but this this new subcommittee has been created as an oversight mechanism uh, to take a hard look at the implementation of this uh, electronic health care record over the many years to come. Uh, so, you know, I, I find it interesting that, you know, Congress in its infinite wisdom decided to create a, a new committee after you made a $10 billion plus purchase. <laughs> but uh, that's what they've done in this case. So, um, you know, no doubt still important uh, because the implementation of um, software uh, programs with both VA and the federal government in general have historically been pretty abysmal. Uh, the, the, the DOD side of this contract, um, you know, to back up a little bit, you know, the intent of picking Cerner for this contract is that the Department of Defense has similarly bought uh, this uh, same type of software uh, via Cerner uh, and and, and um, Lidos, a program called MHS Genesis. So the idea here, and I, you know, every veteran gets this. I know you get this, is that you have, uh, you know, one seamless electronic healthcare record from the day you sign up. Uh, you, you you know, you show up to whether it be you know Great Lakes for Navy boot camp, and you, you know you get, or even before then, right? You get your medical examination before you actually even get into the service, all the way till you get that exit examination, um, and then beyond that, once once you're a veteran uh, and you're going to receive care at the VA. The idea here is one seamless electronic healthcare record. Uh, that was largely their rationale in, in in giving a sole source, huge sole source contract to Cerner without competing it. There are a lot of other companies out there uh, that, that that likely would have bid for this work. Um, but at the end of the day, having one company in theory uh, made it seem easier in terms of overall impl implementation. Um, now, the reality is, is that VA is actually much more complex than the DOD component on this contract. VA is much larger. Uh, many more hospitals, many more community-based outpatient clinics, uh, and then just so many different variations in terms of delivery of care, which, you know, many argue is a good thing, but many argue is a bad thing. But at, at the end of the day, this subcommittee was created to really keep an eye on how this is implemented, how money is being spent, um, and, and it probably harkens back to, uh, you know, some, some pretty uh, poor rollouts of historically big projects at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, you know, we had some huge overruns on, on probably two expensive hospitals. Uh, Denver, Colorado comes, comes immediately to mind, which was, um, you know, more than twice over its initial budget and just completely 
completely bungled to the point where uh, the you know the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers had to come in and take over the project. So I think what uh, you know I think what the committee is really trying to do here is make it clear uh, that they're going to be keeping a very very close eye on this. And we're speaking with Justin Brown, the founder and CEO of HillVets, keeping a close eye on everything taking place on Capitol Hill that involves veterans. That Cerner implementation, you know, it's interesting. When I hear that something cost billions of dollars, I expect it to happen pretty quickly. We're talking still a couple of years before it's even put into place, right? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking a couple of years. You're, you're absolutely right. So to put this into perspective, um, the initial software that was purchased for uh, the DOD implementation, um, you know, that, that, that started as many as, I think, I think it was about five years ago. Uh, and there was, there was, at the time, there was some back and forth be- between the Department of Defense and VA uh, in terms of trying to create a seamless solution. Congress did weigh in at that time. Uh, members were, you know, pushing in various directions. Some were arguing that the Department of Defense should uh, take uh, VA's existing electronic health care record, which is called VISTA. Um, and then others were arguing that uh, both DOD and VA should buy off-the-shelf off the software. Um, what ended up happening at that time is both said no, um, measures that would have required VA and DOD to essentially pick one or the other collectively uh, failed, and that allowed this can essentially to be kicked down the road about, you know, to, to, to essentially where we're at within the last, you know, six months up until the, the, the president made the choice, um, along with the, the time secretary, uh, Dr. David Shulkin, uh, to create uh, one seamless record and that to do that, that they were going to go to CERN. Well, that that all started with DOD, you know, I think five-ish years ago, uh, selecting uh, Cerner uh, Lidos uh, for a program called MHS Genesis. Um, that is barely being rolled out in pilot phases today uh, in Northwest, in the Northwestern United States. Wow. Um, so primarily, like, you know, uh, Lewis McCord, uh, Bremerton, uh, those those are some of the initial um, uh, some of the initial sites where they're rolling this out, uh, and, and there's been some pretty damning reports going along with with that rollout in terms of you know some, I think it was something to the tune of 150 uh, discrepancies that they listed could have been uh, fatal. So you know, not off to a very good start. Uh, does it does it mean it won't come around? Um, no, but uh, you know, again, not a very good start. I've, I've seen other software rollouts, watch them closely, uh, particularly uh, VBMS, which was the Veterans Benefits Management System, and that's when our claim system was a complete mess. Mm. Um, and and the idea was, you know, how do we how do we put more, how do we put the claim system from a paper based? And I don't know if you recall these pictures of just paper files literally bending, uh, you know, bending like buildings because they were so heavy and the floors were collapsing. Um, but how do we take all that paper, ingest it, and, and process these claims in electronics in an electronic system? Um, similarly, that program rolled out extraordinarily poor. 
yeah. uh, at, at the beginning. It, it wasn't working well. You know, it was getting hammered by the VAOIG and others. Um, yeah. You know, the, the staff hated it because it was a change. Um, but over time and, you know, as they continue to go down the road and, um, and, and build it and continue to take user feedback, it came around full circle. But, you know, essentially the, the claims backlog is non-existent. It's all of an appeals backlog now. But the claims backlog, you know, really at a fast rate was, was drawn down. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm pretty sure it was yeah. over cost and not on time. Well, when you pay that much for something, you want it quickly and you want it to work right away. And uh, there's a lot of questions about the second part of that. And there's no question about the quickly part. That just ain't happening. We've been speaking with Justin Brown, founder and CEO of Hillvets. Justin, if people want to find out more about Hillvets and more about the work that you're doing and find out about the Hillvets House Fellowship, where can they go to do so? Uh, please check us out at www.hillvets.org, and you can find us on Twitter at Hillvets. There you go. Justin Brown, founder and CEO of Hillvets. Thank you so much for joining us on this Tuesday edition of The Morning Briefing. And on behalf of myself, Jake Hughes, and the entire ConnectingVets.com team, thank you very much for listening. Hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks to our other guest, of course, Senator Johnny Isaacson, chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. We'll be back tomorrow with another fantastic show. We're going to talk to the Hilton Hotel family. Yeah, it's going to be some good stuff about some good job things that they're doing for veterans. Have a great day. See you tomorrow. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.